All right, so if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Ephesians. That's uh, what we're going to be studying January, February, March uh, this year here at Parfee. So we're in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Also, last week, you may not have been back yet from traveling or whatever, but we are using these uh, Ephesians books. And uh, actually, my ushers are not... Could somebody... Mm, never mind. I'm really sorry. The ushers were supposed to be handing these out. Are, are they all... They're not here. Uh, yeah, Rich, if you could just give my heads up that it's time for this. They did it last hour, so... Um, so, let me say these books. So, uh, we used these last year in a Philippian study where you have the text of the scripture on one side and you take notes on the other. People, some people really like that with Philippians. So, we've grabbed some more. Uh, they are like five bucks. Uh, and so, if you want to just grab one now, though, the ushers are coming. They do have some. So, if you'd like one, just slip a hand up. You don't have to pay them now. It's not like a Kinnick where you have to pay for the popcorn and pass it down the row. Like you can just pay for it later at the table. But um, some people really like these. So, if you would like one, uh, you could grab one there. So that's awesome. Just slip a hand up. Uh, one of the services last week, while they were doing that, I said something like, how many of you have had the flu shots? So, like everybody raised their hands and they didn't know how many books to give out. So I'll try not to have you raise a hand for something else right now too. So, but um, no, this is a great book of the Bible we're studying. We're going to start in verse 15 of chapter one. And I want to just capture the tone of this book and especially this chapter. Um, this morning before the first service, I ran into a couple of moms. One of them has a seven-month-old who is battling ear infections. And so we we're just talking about how that's so sad. Like you wish you could kind of switch ears or you wish you could, you know, kind of get in there and just kind of heal that. Another mom who uh, has a daughter who broke her leg, like skiing. And so same kind of thing. Like you'd like to just kind of, you know, there's, there's times as a parent or with somebody you like and really love, care about, it's kind of going through a hard time. You'd wish you could just infuse them with uh, courage or with your love or with something that will help them flourish even through that hard time. Or maybe when your kids get, over and get older and they're going off to school for the first time or they're going to college again, if you could just inject them with something that'll just get them ready to face anything that's coming. That's kind of the tone I'm getting from the author of this book of Ephesians. So his name was Paul. He wrote about half of the New Testament, and he's writing to some Christians in a town called Ephesus, where it would have been incredibly difficult to be a Christian. This brand new faith in a very cosmopolitan city, very educated, an affluent city, a lot of different gods, a lot of different ways to worship, uh, and yet this new church is starting. And so Paul had spent about three years with them. So they were really close to him. He, he loved them dearly. And so there's been a gap of time now from when he was actually with them. And Paul is actually now writing from prison. But as he's apart from them, uh, he's on their hearts and, and trying to really encourage them. There's a clue in chapter 3 that the people were discouraged. And so we're thinking that this whole chapter 1 was written to really encourage them in the midst of their discouragement. And I was just thinking about when you get discouraged about something, usually there's a couple things that float around with that. Usually there's some hopelessness, like you get discouraged because it seems like whatever's going on now just won't go away or it, it won't change. So they can be hopeless. Maybe they can feel worthless uh, or maybe they feel powerless. And so maybe for even some of us this morning trying to live out your faith in today's culture, or maybe there's a part of your life as a parent or as a, in a marriage or in a friendship or something at your job it's just hard, and you're, 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 maybe one of those things is floating around. You're discouraged because you're feeling this is hopeless, or, man, I'm just worthless. I can't 
do this. I can't pull this off. I don't have the power to do this. What our chapter today, uh, really, what I think the author, what Paul's trying to do for the Ephesians and what God is trying to do for us is to remind us of the riches that we have in Christ, that God wants to empower us to live out his mission, fulfill his mission uh, through us, through what we have in Christ, that we are rich in Christ, that we do not have to be discouraged no matter what it is that we are going through. So let me um, pray for us and just pray that God would meet us wherever we are this morning, whatever that area for you of discouragement or battle or challenge might be, that these reminders from Paul to the Ephesians would also speak clearly to us today. So uh, why don't we pray, and let me ask you to go first, just quietly uh, where you are. Just ask God to speak to you from his word this morning. Ask God to speak to you and address an area of need that he sees in your life. God, thank you for this rich uh, passage we're going to read today, and I pray that we are reminded of the riches that you have blessed us with in Christ, and that you would meet needs of discouragement or places we feel weak or powerless or hopeless, that you would remind us of the truth of who we are in Christ. And I pray if someone is here this morning and doesn't quite know you yet or is trying to figure this out, I pray that they would be drawn to you, Jesus, as they hear about the life that you offer to those that follow you. So we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start reading the first three verses. Ephesians 1, read verses 15 to 17. In this whole passage, we're going to look at the ultimate prayer. Uh, we're going to look at, um, <laughs> I should know this, I just preached it, uh, three ultimates here, ultimate prayer, ultimate riches, and the ultimate mission. All right, so... Um, if you're curious, like from verse 15 down to verse 23 is all one sentence. We heard that last week too. Three through 14, one whole sentence. 15 to 23 in the Greek language, one whole sentence. And then actually the first half of chapter two, one whole sentence. It's like Paul find a period now and then, right? So, but anyway, just again though, it's like last week he is so, he has so much to say. Paul's just kind of pouring it on. So verse 15, we're gonna talk about the ultimate prayer. Let me read the first three verses. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Other versions will say, so that you will know him better. So Paul's praying for them, but while he himself is in prison, uh, Ephesians is one of the four uh, prison epistles, prison letter, letters, letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison. And so, and so you, you could imagine that uh, for Paul, uh, he is writing, these people mean a lot to him, but he himself is in a tough spot. In fact, he's awaiting a trial to figure out if he's going to even live or die. And so if you're writing a letter under those contexts, uh, you can imagine this letter is going to be loaded with some passion and with what really matters. Like, there's not going to be a lot of fluff in this. So that's what's going on with him. And I call this first point the ultimate prayer in two ways. So I'm going to talk about first how Paul was the ultimate prayer, like the person who prayed in a very powerful way. Um, if Paul was praying for you, that was a very good thing, all right? So we're given a glimpse of not this imprisonment, but another time that Paul prayed when he was in prison, 
There's a lot of P's there. So uh, in Acts 16, there was a story of Paul was in um, a city in Philippi, and all he was trying to do was go and teach people the Bible. And as he was going, he noticed a slave girl that uh, was caught in a certain trade, and he just moved toward releasing her from slavery. And so in that whole interaction, he ended up getting arrested. He ended up getting beaten with rods and then thrown into an inner cell in a prison, all right? And so then we're told at midnight, after all of that happened, Paul and his friend Silas, who also was right there with him, were singing praises to Jesus and were praying to Jesus, all right? This is, the kind, this is who we're talking about, a guy that prays. is not whining and complaining. He's praying. And as the story goes on, there's an earthquake that opens all the doors in the jail. The chains fall off all the prisoners, and the jailer comes rushing in, realizing in that day, if the prisoners escaped, it meant his life. So he just assumed all the prisoners were gone. He was ready to kill himself. Paul said, don't do that. We're all here. And the immediate thing that jailer did was go before Paul and just fall before him and say, what must I do to be saved? Like he was just so blown away by Paul's courage, his joy, and his passion, even in the midst of the beating and the imprisonment, okay? So um, that, that's who's praying here. That's, that's the story of Paul, and we're going to come back to that story in a little bit, but, but that's who's praying here. He's the ultimate prayer, and then it's interesting to see the content of his prayer. What's he praying for? The first thing he does is he's thankful for them, uh, their faith, their love for all of God's people. And so as Paul is, again, facing a very hard situation now in prison again, he's looking back over his life, and he's thinking of the highlights, and some of those highlights were just the Ephesians and their faith and their love, and so he's very thankful for them. He's praising, thanking God for them. And I, I wanted to take that moment to do the same thing that Paul just did to the Ephesians. Uh, for me, this will be year 24 to be a pastor here at Parkview, and I will echo Paul in saying thank you to you as a church. There have been so many uh, things that I have seen God do through you. I've seen you step up and serve, step up and care for each other, step up and meet needs in our community. But even personally, the way you have encouraged, the way you have uh, helped, the way you have served me personally. I mean, sometimes I come across things that I did in my early years here, maybe sermons I had done, and I go, how in the world do those people still want me here? And some of you guys are saying, well, it's still not much better, Doug, but we still got you here. But I just know this has been um, an amazing place, amazing people, an amazing city to do ministry with. So I want to say thank you uh, to you, uh, just like Paul is saying thank you to the Ephesians. And so then he prays, now it's the other ultimate prayer, the ultimate prayer that Paul prays for them, what matters most, again, he's about ready to live or die, he's not going to fill this with fluff, he goes right for the heart, right for the jugular, what do you pray for when you pray for people you really love? And he says he prays that they would know God better, that is the highest and the ultimate pursuit is to know God, that God himself said that in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. He said, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the rich man boast of his riches, the strong man boast of his strength, but let him who boasts, boast about this, that he knows and understands me. All right, so knowing God, Jesus said the same thing in John 17, 3, 
when he was praying to his father, he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the epitome, the essential pursuit in life is to know God. And so uh, Paul is praying that for them, that they would know God better. And so you would think, well, that's a vast subject. Like, how can you know God better? And that's why Paul says that through the spirit of um, understanding, through the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we will get to know him. Like, so again, here's us on earth trying to get to know the eternal Uh, infinite God, like that's an impossible quest, except that God has now given us his spirit, if you're following Jesus, so that he will help you see who God is. He will reveal God to you. So if you ask the question, how can I get to know God better? I think as a follower of Jesus, you just ask, God, I want to know you better. And his spirit is the one who reveals God to you, because on our own, we would not figure God out, okay? So you pray, the next thing you do is, I would say, you've got to read this book. Like, you've got to read the Bible to learn about who God is. This is God speaking to us. And then the third part to that is not just read this book, but do it. O- obey it. In fact, Jesus said that whoever obeys me is the one who loves me, and I will love him, and my Father and I will reveal ourselves to him. Like, the way you really get to know Jesus, no God, is by reading the word, but it can't just be an academic pursuit. There's a lot of people today that know the Bible, but they don't know God. The way you make sure you take your knowledge of the Bible and and turn it into knowledge of God is you obey it. You put it to practice, all right? And we'll come back to that in a few minutes too. And so, so the ultimate prayer, Paul prays the ultimate prayer for the Ephesians, that they would know God better, all right? So then the benefit out of that, we continue in verse 18, is that as you get to know God better, you get to know the riches that he has given us in Christ better and better. So starting in verse 18, we see the ultimate riches. And again, this is going to sound like we're jumping mid-sentence. We are. This is one long sentence here, okay? So verse 18 says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So This passage here from verse 18 on is um, kind of sentimental to me. I, right out of seminary, had the privilege of traveling in India. I had a classmate who was a Hindu convert and was living in a kind of an upper caste, middle upper caste, and he had gone back to India to plant churches. And so I got to go and kind of follow him around and do some video so that a group of people back in the States would learn of his ministry and support his ministry. So got to travel around with him and a seasoned missionary that I learned so much from just in a short amount of time with him. I've told this story before of the first night there where this missionary and I were on the floor, kind of a concrete floor, covered in mosquito netting, which was supposed to protect us, and we wake up the next morning covered with bug bites. And I was grumbling. I was like, what is all this? And he wakes up and he's like, praise the Lord. And I'm going, that's amazing. You responded that way. I'm sure that will wear off as this trip goes on. And that was not the case. Like that guy continued to praise the Lord through a lot of hardship we saw on that trip. So, but it was about an hour. We were visiting different churches. And I don't know that I'd been around that much poverty and hardship uh, and that many people going through it all at one time. It was just mind-blowing. And so we were visiting some of these small churches, and we were, from what I remember, a couple hours out from one of them, and this missionary turns to me and says, "Uh, Doug, you're going to preach 
at the next church. It's like, okay, so here we go. And just thinking through the scripture, what in the world would I say to people in this context? And you guys, it was this, this text right here to affirm them of the riches that they have in Christ. And so I, I think Paul's heart was similar as he's, these people he's loving are going through such adversity and hard times. He just wants them to know uh, the riches uh, they have in Christ. So what we're going to see is, if we go through the next three verses, uh, the riches we have are hope, that we are valuable to God, and that we have a power in Christ. All right, those are the three riches. So the first one was the hope to which he called you, the hope of your calling. That was the first of these riches that we have in Christ. Remember, we've said this before, but whenever you see the word hope in the Bible, don't think wish. Like sometimes we use the word hope, like I hope it doesn't snow this weekend, and it didn't snow too much, right? So if that was your hope or wish on Friday, it was granted, right? But when the Bible says hope, it means certainty. It means there's a confidence to this. Like your confidence is in your calling. And I just have to go back to the illustration we used last week about our calling, about being chosen by God to be his sons or daughters, okay? So I'm notorious in our family. If I hear a good joke, I got to keep telling it. So I came across a great illustration last week to picture this. If you were here last week, remember, like, just picture a cross that is wide enough here that, that there's a door, like, you could walk through. And this came from Donald Barnhouse. It was a great analogy of of what it means to be chosen by God. And so if you remember that story on this side of the door, on this side of the cross, over this door maybe says, whoever will believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Like the day you heard the gospel, the day the gospel made sense to you, you said, yes, I want that. And so you open the door and you walk through. So like from this perspective, it's like I put my faith in Christ. Like I choose to do this. Like this is me doing this, and you get on the other side, and you are a son or a daughter of God. You've been, you know, adopted in his family and all the blessings here, but you turn around, and you look over the door there, and on this side, the door says, chosen by God. Remember, we saw that in verse 4, chapter 1, chosen before the foundation of the world, and there's a hope in that. There's a, there's a confidence in that. Again, it does not make sense. <laughs> a long conversation after second hour about people, you know, having... It is absolutely confusing, but both are absolutely true, that we are responsible for making this choice. Like, we are given this, this option. Are you going to trust in Jesus? Yes, but once we get through, we realize that I'm there because God chose me. And that gives me confidence because I didn't get through that door based on my performance or how smart I was or I figured this out. Because if I could earn my way in, it means I could also earn my way and get booted out. But when it was God's idea in the first place, when God chose me before the foundation of the world, there's a confidence in that. There's a hope that I'm not going anywhere, that I am God's son, I'm God's daughter. I have ch- I've been chosen, I am in his family, I've been adopted by him. Paul says that is the hope of your calling. You're secure in your relationship in Christ, right? So that's one of the riches. The next one is that we are given a glorious value. In verse 18, again, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you will know the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so you ask the question, and we talked about this last week too, as it came up in the earlier passage, whose inheritance are we talking about? Because certainly you look in other places in the Bible that when you put your faith in Christ, you receive many things, many benefits we have an inheritance because of 
of uh, Christ and our, our position in him. But in this, in this text here, this is God receiving an inheritance. And that blows me away, that we are God's inheritance. It reflects a truth taught in Deuteronomy chapter 9, where God called his people his inheritance. Or when Jesus would say throughout the Gospels that praying to his Father, thank you for the people you have given me, that we are a gift to him. And again, that just sounds, it just blows your mind. How in the world could frail, sinful, small uh, people like us be, be God's inheritance? And again, it all comes down to our value and our worth comes from a couple places. One is we were all created in the image of God. Every person has value in the eyes of God. We talked about that. We looked at the book of Genesis so that we have that value to God as being image bearers. But, but we have all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. And so in spite of that, what God did for us is he loved us and valued us so much that he had Jesus die for us. We saw that in verse 7, that he redeemed us. He, he with his own blood, paid for us to be forgiven uh, so that we could be the children of God, right? And so, so like in real estate, if you're trying to sell a house and you could set the price you want to on that house, you know, bottom line is, what is this house worth? It's going to be worth whatever anybody is willing to pay for it, right? And so when you take what Christ has done for us, in Ephesians 1 7 where he redeemed us like you put a price tag on us how much were we worth to God we were worth the the price of his son dying for us on the cross so in a world where you could be told that for all kinds of reasons you are not valuable you are not worth much where the standards are all over the place about what makes you valuable or not in the eyes of God you are valuable to him because of his love for you and that Jesus died for you. That's how much you matter. That's how much you are worth uh, to God. You have a glorious value. And then the next section, it goes the longest here. I wonder if Paul just really wanted them to understand about the incomparable power that he wants to give them. And so I'm going to start reading in verse 19. And what happens in the Greek language here is that Paul just starts stacking words that mean power, just kind of starts stacking them on each other. And so it'll, it'll come out still as we read here in English. But he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Okay, um, Paul, why don't, you, uh, why don't you, you know, stop holding back, Paul. Tell us what you really think about God's power. Like, why don't you, you know, just, just put it all out there. And that's exactly what he's doing. He is emphasizing how much power that, that God has and what he has done, basically from two acts, in raising Christ from the dead and then placing Jesus at his right hand far above. And then he uses so many descriptors to say, who is Jesus greater than? Like, who does he have more power than? And he's grabbing every word he can think of, rule, authority, power, dominion. Uh, and not just temporarily, but forever. Jesus has that high spot of, of superiority, authority, power. And there is no one greater than Jesus, no one more powerful than Jesus. In the day in Ephesus, that word would have been incredibly encouraging to the Christians, who, again, were surrounded by other gods, 
other worldviews. There was a lot of occultic practices, a lot of magical powers. And so they were kind of swimming in a culture where there were all kinds of different things being promised to you that if you do this, you'll have power. If you follow this God, you'll have power for this. Paul just says, you know what? I'm not going to just, I'm not going to mention all the gods, all the magics, all that, all that, that Jesus is greater than. I'm just going to tell you, let's just cut it to the quick, that no one is greater than Jesus. Like he has all power, all authority, all rule. And when you are in Christ, you also have power. You have, his power is now shared with you. That is one of the richest we have in Christ is his power. The goal of this passage, I think, is the encouragement to God's people to cling to the promises that we have in Christ. So instead of being discouraged and kind of slugging through life, hopeless and worthless and powerless in Christ, we have the hope of his calling. We have the value of being his inheritance, bought with the blood of Jesus. And now we have the supreme power of being in Jesus Christ, all right? So, but there's one more act of power I saved for my last point, the ultimate movement, verses 23 and 24, where where there's now a conclusion. Okay, now that Jesus is in this position of authority and power, what's he doing with that? So look at verse 22. It says that, that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so, Again, just making it super clear. There is no government. There is no power. There is no movement. There is no person uh, that is greater than Jesus. He has all authority. And now what God has done with Jesus in that position of authority is he has gifted him to us. He has gifted him to the church. And the role Jesus plays in the church, in, 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 in the people of God, is that he is the head of the church. He's the source of authority, the source of power, the one that gives direction, uh, the leader. And so just like in a human body, how, how crucial the head is, Jesus is now in that place of ultimate authority over the whole, the whole ex- existing universe, over every authority and power. He's now head of the church, and we are his body, that in Christ, we are now tapping into that power and authority. So so we are on mission with him, as it says, uh, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God's desire is to fill all of his creation with the knowledge of who God is. And that's going to be through Jesus in his church. And that's going to be our privilege to be a part of this body. That as Jesus is exerting his authority over this whole planet, we get to be a part of that plan, the ultimate mission. So I don't know if you remember, we studied Genesis last fall, and when God made the first man and woman, his mandate to them was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they fell short of that when they rebelled against God. But now again, as through Christ, we are rescued by God from our sins. We are now brought into his body. This is now the mission of the church, that as Jesus is our authority and as our leader, as teaching us and sending us where to go, uh, we are reflecting who God is wherever we go as we follow Christ. And so uh, that, that's God's desire is that his glory, his fame, his power, his love, his grace, his mercy would just be reflected wherever his people go, wherever this body goes. 
uh, until he fills all in all. So um, that is our amazing mission that we have now. And so, again, we go from being, if we're discouraged and uh, not aware of what God has done for us, and we can feel hopeless or worthless or powerless. Now, in Christ, we have hope, we have value, we have power to fulfill the mission that God is calling us to do, to reflect who he is throughout this whole earth. That's why we can go back to the story of Paul in prison, that instead of uh, Paul, like, moaning and grinding, you know, complaining, like, oh, I got beat up, like, why am I in prison here? Like, God's plan in that situation was for Paul, even in that situation, to cling to his riches in Christ and reflect who Christ is, even in the darkest of prisons, so that this jailkeeper and his whole family end up following Jesus because Paul was putting Jesus on display. The same is true for us as we get scattered and whatever our situation is going, you know, whatever situations we're going through, whatever our hardships are, uh, whatever it is discouraging to you, whatever it is uh, that, man, I'm just not, it's just not happening or there's some brokenness here or uh, how do we still fight through that? We cling to the riches that we have in Christ. So if there's difficulties at work or you're being slandered or you're being offended or you're being, yeah, whatever it is, whatever hardship it is, Paul is saying to us, you have riches in Christ to continue to follow Christ and reflect him wherever you are. And God can use those circumstances to point people to Christ. And so um, I just want to end, end with this kind of example of how that's happening uh, in our world today. So Iran has been um, just all over the news in the last couple of weeks. And uh, it's also interesting that one of the places in the world, again, you would least expect it, but one of the places in the world where the church is advancing uh, in the greatest way is in Iran. So when uh, the Shah of Iran fell, when the Islamic Revolution happened in 1979, the estimate is there were around 5,000 or so believers. Today, the estimate is those numbers could be as high as a million people. And I read an article about how the gospel, how is the church growing and expanding so rapidly in Iran. Here were a couple of the main points is that number one is that God's people there uh, are, are courageously praying, God, would you lead me to someone that I could teach about Jesus? And the focus is on making disciples, on making, so as that prayer is prayed, God is leading uh, these believers to people who maybe have had a dream or uh, uh, some circumstance that has caused them to start asking about Jesus. Here comes a believer then to share with them, to begin teaching them about Jesus, and as they are learning about Jesus, they convert. They begin to follow Jesus, and then they do the same thing. They start looking for someone to share with. So they say the three key dynamics are to pray courageously, to then study the Word of God avidly, and then to obey it. That's the simple formula that the believers are doing that they credit to the fast growth of the church in Iran. Let me tell you three stories briefly of believers coming to Christ in Iran. One is a man named Kamran, who was a violent man, used to sell drugs and weapons, and one day a friend gave him a New Testament, and he just started reading it for five straight days. And as he was reading the New Testament, he gave his life to Jesus. And when his friends and family saw that his life was changing over the next months, many of them also came to faith, and there's now a church meeting out of this man's home. There's a man named Reza who was a mullah, that's a Muslim scholar, 
His ambition was to become an ayatollah, that's a Shiite leader. And one day he was studying in an Islamic seminary and somebody left a New Testament on the table in the library at the Islamic seminary. That was a very brave person, whoever did that. So he picked up the New Testament and began to read it. And uh, he was deeply shaken. And over time, he fell in love with Jesus. And today, Reza is a trained church planter in Iran. One more story of a woman named Fatima that earliest memories for her was just raised in a very brutal home where she was abused by her brothers. At age 11, she was sold into a marriage by a young drug addict who also abused her and then divorced her when she was 17. So she moved back home. The abuse continued there. So she left and just started living on the streets. And it was on the streets she met some Christians who were caring for street people like her. And she heard the gospel and she responded and began to follow Jesus. A few years later, married a Christian man and then felt called by God to go back to her home and to tell what Jesus had done in her life. Her whole family converted, and now there's a church meeting in her home. Because those are beautiful stories that's bringing Ephesians 1 to life in today's world, that, that these believers clinging to their riches in Christ are seeing the gospel advance. And the same is, is available to us, the same is happening to us, that the things we learn here when we come as God's people in his church that has been blessed with Jesus as its head, as our authority, as we worship him, learn about him, remind ourselves of the riches we have in Christ, then we scatter here, go to our homes, go to our neighborhoods, go to school, go to work, and we have that same calling of reflecting the goodness of God. And so may God continue to use us to advance the gospel as we cling to his riches that we see here in Ephesians 1. And I want to do this. I'm going to give you time to pray. I almost feel like this sermon could be like a kid in PE class where the teacher starts talking to you about basketball. I remember in that day, I would have said, I just want to play basketball. Like, don't just talk to me about basketball. Let's scrimmage. Let's play. And so just talking about prayer, I want to give us time to pray, to actually pray. And so um, just giving you time to pray quietly where you are, or if you want to pray with somebody next to you, you could do that. But let me give you, just kind of following Paul's lead here, let me give us a few specific things to pray for. And um, what if our first prayer, you guys, is the prayer to God, that God, I want to know you more. God, would you help me grow in my understanding of who you are, okay? So uh, go ahead and start with that, either again quietly or with people next to you. Just pray, God, I want to know you better in 2020. I want this to be a year where I know you in deeper and deeper ways.